0: Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you doing today, sir?
1: Yeah, I'm doing great. I'm so excited about Halloween. I carved a pumpkin, and it looks pretty cool. Did I send that picture to you? I think so. Maybe we should put it on our our Instagram. It's a little Grim Reaper with a blade.
0: Oh, is that what that thing was? Yes. I dressed up for the first time in like a decade yesterday. So that was fun. As Killmonger? No. I actually dressed up as Magnitude from Community. And oh. uh, basically nobody got
1: it. I don't know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> One thing else for me this week that was a highlight is I was invited to give a talk in sacrament meeting this past ah, Sunday. Ah, yes. How did that and go? S- and what did you talk about? A few of us were there in person. Like a limited number, and I was speaking in person, and everyone else was at home on Zoom. And I spoke about the title of my talk was "The Case of the Vineyard and the Unexplained Death." I wanted to give it a very snappy title so that people will actually read it. And and by the way, listeners, I can give this. I can make this available to you somehow. We can put it on the Facebook something. We can put it in the Google Drive. Yeah. What I did is, I just got up there with just me and my Greek New Testament, without any notes written out, and I spoke for 20 minutes passionately on the dignity of my people and our inclusion in this world and the next. I used the parable of the laborers in the vineyard from Matthew 20 to talk about the first shall be last and all this stuff. And I got a lot of good feedback afterward, but then I realized something. That talk wouldn't have gone over so well in Utah, probably, certain words. that's tough. Why do you say that? Well, I had people report on me like, you said that here, but it, you would have gotten pulled off the stage elsewhere in the country. So you, I don't know. People can read my talk and see what they think, how it would be received. But I was realizing something, that if I took a cross-country drive, that my dignity in the church would fade in and out like cell phone coverage. Interesting. Yes. I'm lucky here in the Boston area, but not everyone is. And I could go to a different state, a different ward and be treated horribly. Yep. That is the truth. So we need to do something about that. And you're also going to be teaching tomorrow. Are you not going to be in? Yeah, you're teaching a Sunday school lesson. Tomorrow. I am. So I'm going to be talking about Mormon one through six, which we did last week, you and I did last week, and then also in combination with President Oaks' talk from this past week, which we're also going to talk about today.
0: Anything else we want to report on before we get into it with Elder Oaks' talk? Yeah, that's it for me. All right, cool. About to say ain't nothing going on in my life so let's go ahead and move on to uh oaks's words but before we do that just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the dialogue podcast network a collective of independent interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful respectful and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of lds tradition thought arts and culture find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network that's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network okay so Oaks's words this week. So first off, I just want to lift this up real quick. If you didn't see the Black LDS Legacy Committee's response uh, to the talk or Zandra, Zandra Vrains' response to the talk, I highly recommend it. I think they articulated... The best thoughts on the talk, and you know, just the general response to it. I've seen all kinds of responses to Oakes' talk, but not a lot of people, particularly Black people out there, who are putting out their responses to the talk. I don't know if you saw uh, Peggy Fletcher Stack's Facebook post, but like she was asking specifically for Black people's thoughts on the thing, and just every single comment was a white person sharing their thoughts. And I'm just like, goodness, people like. People really think they got such important things to say about our struggles, but yeah, you can go to the Black LDS Legacy Facebook pages, Facebook page to get those thoughts. I think Zandra's thoughts can also be seen there. If you don't see them there, you can go to the Sisters in Zion Facebook page. You can see Zandra's thoughts there. I believe we have posted, um, posted the Black LDS Legacy. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we posted that on our Facebook page, so there's just... Various avenues that y'all can go peep the thoughts of Black Saints on Elder Oaks, President Oaks's talk at the BYU devotional this past Tuesday. That said, I would like to just briefly address some of the highlights. First of all, did you see the title of the talk, Derek? It was called Racism and Other Challenges, right? But yes. Racism is actually in the title. The only talk that I can think of where racism is actually in the subject and subsequently or... In the title, and subsequently, the subject of the talk is mostly racism. It's the most comprehensive talk we have on the subject by a general authority to date,
1: which is pretty significant. And President Oaks is the one giving it. I know. So, can I just tell you something yeah. weird? When I first saw the news on Facebook, I saw President Oaks said that Black Lives Matter. And my first thought was. I have no idea if that's a hoax or not. I was about to say, that has to be fake. And it was only when I started reading some of the quotes and hearing the disclaimers and caveats that I realized, oh, that's authentic. Mm-hmm. Right? Because mm-hmm. I saw that and realized, oh, that's that must be authentic Oaks. It's authentic.
0: And, you know, what you said just speaks volumes about the power of what Oaks said. He's literally the last person I would expect to say Black Lives Matter. Of any of the Q15, Oaks is literally the last person I would have expected to say anything in this vein which also tells me that it kind of had to be Oakes to say this stuff. If Oaks was the one to say this, it clearly has some weight to get into that some more. There are two big things that Oakes said that I really want to highlight that are worth bringing up. The first and the most groundbreaking for the church that he said was actually saying Black Lives Matter. He said it three times and he said it without qualifying the statement. People would usually try to say Black Lives Matter but or Black Lives Matter comma, Oaks didn't do any of that. There was no caveats. There was no uh, disclaimers. There was no qualifiers. He just said Black Lives Matter. Of course, Black Lives Matter. Everybody, every reasonable person can get behind the message Black Lives Matter. That is significant. And I say it's significant because Oaks made people upset. Oaks made racists mad. And that's how I know we're going in the right direction. (laughs) When racist people are calling Oaks a leftist shill and all other kinds of things, I'm just like, Oaks is doing something right. The church is doing something right. Because now we're actually making racist members mad. We're making them upset. We're Mm -hmm. making them struggle a little bit. So I think that
1: is progress in the right direction. And that's when a prophet really is a prophet in the biblical sense. Getting people mad enough Mm -hmm. to kill you. Yeah, getting your own people mad enough to kill you is what a prophet needs to do. Yes, sir. So uh, there was that whole thing. And the second thing that he did,
0: which was significant and something that I've been asking for ever since the George Floyd protests, and probably longer than that, but at least the last time I can remember audibly expressing this desire, was he specifically named police brutality, anti-black racism, and he said systemic discrimination. Not just Mm. highlighting systemic discrimination towards black people, but he also highlighted towards uh, Latin folks, to native folks, to Asian folks. And he also named systemic discrimination in housing and employment, which again, has not been done. I've been looking for people to be more specific on what the attitudes and actions of prejudice are and there is Oaks naming police brutality. Oaks came out and he did it. We have words we can use from the brethren now. We have words we can use from Oaks of all people. He said, Black Lives Matter. He named police brutality of an example, not just of racism, but an example of systemic discrimination. He named systemic discrimination. Like, do you know how many folks in the church deny this much like they deny police brutality they deny systemic discrimination they deny anti-black racism they believe in the post-racial america and then we got Oakes, yeah. who just says the opposite of all that just that is significant oaks is making racists
1: upset he's making racist people struggle and i'm totally mm. here for it and i think this goes back to something we said i think the past two weeks is that everyone seems to agree that racism is wrong but yes. people don't agree with what racism is, and right. they have carved right. out a definition of racism that completely immunizes themselves from Correct. any self critique. Correct. They think racism is not hiring a black person just because they're mm-hmm. black or mm-hmm. yelling the N word from a pickup truck with the mm-hmm. flaming cross. Like, that's not the whole picture. Right. And it's I think that's not even the
0: majority of the picture.
1: And when you get into sort of the structural and systemic issues that are underlying all this, that's the stuff that they deny, and that's the stuff that Oaks is getting us to look at
0: yes that is important so i I just want to lift all that up there were some things in the talk and i think we got to acknowledge this too that i wasn't as cool with One was the implication that changing building names or uh taking down monuments was an inappropriate ask and i took issue with that for a couple of reasons but like one thing that came to my mind, I don't know if you saw the Smoot family's response to calls to change the name of the Smoot building, the administration building on BYU campus, but I just remember they really pitched a fit when students on BYU's campus wanted the name of that building changed, and i Oaks also, in, in addition to the Smoot family, talked about how acts like this would be token gestures or how they would be bending the need to political correctness or how they would ultimately do nothing or erase Smoot's legacy or the legacy of other founding fathers when we talked about uh, Confederate monuments or the names of other buildings and streets, stuff like that. But my problem with that is the one question that I noticed the, fo- the Smoot family struggle to answer when they were taken a task is what are they going to do to rectify the problematic aspects of Abraham Smoot's slaveholding legacy? Oaks didn't address this either. Now, Oaks and, you know, the Smoot family did this as well. They were touting the merits of things like reason and faith, respectful discourse, inspiration, education, and uh, clear thinking in You know, battling racism. And I can get down with all that, but the problem is that we've been doing these things for literal centuries. We've proposed laws, we've ran for offices, we've written books, we've taught classes, we've literally begged for our lives. And we've had conversations of all kinds and people are still acting racist. My issue with Oaks and the Smoot family are they're talking to us and about us like... Changing the names of buildings, taking down Confederate statues, getting rid of Confederate flags, getting rid of Aunt Jemima. They act like that is plan A to us. Like they're talking to us like that is the first thing that we are thinking of. This is not plan A for black people. Rioting and looting, that was not plan A for black people. This is is like plan Q. Like, this isn't the first and the best things that we've thought of. We've literally been trying what you guys are suggesting right now for centuries. And to talk to us and about us like we haven't tried reasoned discourse, that we haven't tried respectful dialogue, that we haven't tried going through the legal system, that we haven't tried having all this other respectable dialogue or respectable actions to get rid of racism, like that is messed up. That is what bothers me most about this conversation. What we're doing now is not a reflection of us. This is a reflection of you guys. This is a product of you guys not listening to what we've been trying to have a conversation about for the past
1: 400 years. And I think a lot of these issues can be solved. The whole Aunt Jemima thing, these can be solved Really simply, it's yep. by putting black folks in positions of decision making yep. and leadership. That's yep. how you get the priorities right. That's how you stop focusing on these side mm-hmm. issues. That mm-hmm. that's how you, you know, really deal with what the actual problems are and not getting distracted by looting mm-hmm. and Aunt Jemima. Yep, yep. So we just need to trust black people and let them um, take the lead on these things. Absolutely. And you don't know where to start. I
0: compiled a list of educational materials from within the black LDS community a couple of weeks ago. I don't remember how long it was or what prompted it. I think it was President Nelson's talk from General Conference. But I compiled a list of uh, things on my Facebook page. I'll put that in our link tree, actually. But, like, the resources are out there. You guys can learn. Like, if you don't want us to be talking about taking down... Uh, taking down statues or changing the names of buildings. We just got to practice some active anti-racism. And if you don't know where to start there, I definitely recommend my post from a few weeks ago that actually highlights uh, black voices you can listen to and also resources that you can con- that you can
1: consume in your journey to be actively anti-racist. And what I want to name is, obviously President oaks 's talk wasn't perfect. Right. But... There's some things that he didn't say. He never said all lives matter. Correct. He, ne- I don't think he ever mentioned looting. Yep. No mention of looting or rioting or yeah. violence. And that gets back to, I think here's, I think the reason why a lot of white people focus on the looting and, and violence is because the only something only matters to them if it actually affects them. There and it so is. So white people's property ends up mattering more than Black Lives Matter or white people's
0: legacy. Like right. you notice how white people didn't get loud until like the Smoot family didn't get loud about racism or anything of the sort until Abraham Smoot's legacy
1: was threatened by conversations mm-hmm. on racism. And that leads me to this conclusion that the the opposite of Black Lives Matter isn't so much All Lives Matter, but white property matters. Mhm. And I think that's the that's where you get the attention. Definitely. There's one more thing that I felt and
0: bared mentioning, and we've talked about this on the show before, but, um, it needs to be said that the church is still too far behind in this conversation on race. It's still like, we're further behind than the Lord's restored church ought to be on such like an urgent and important conversation. I lifted up uh, the good things that Oakes said. You lifted up the good things that he said as well, as well as the things that he, you know, did not say. Um and it also needs to be named again that what Oakes did is a step in the right direction, I feel. Like that is significant. But in saying that, it also needs to be said that it's not enough. Like we have to acknowledge that lest we become complacent. I don't know if you saw Michael Harriet's post uh, from a couple of days ago. About the windshield? Yes, sir, the windshield. I saw that. Okay, and this is where I'm going to come with a parable. (laughs) (laughs) About to say, like Derek has a poop parable, I'm going to have a poop parable too. So this parable is going to be the parable of revenge defecation. (laughs) Here we go. The kingdom of America slash the church is like like unto an ex- That keeps taking a dump on your windshield. So, Michael, in this story, he uh, dated this woman who would always keep her doors locked. And he didn't understand until one day after leaving her house with her, he noticed Dookie on the windshield. He was appalled at this sight. But she, like nothing had happened, just proceeded to get in the car, turn the wiper fluid and the wipers on, and get rid of the poop. But Michael, not to be deterred by the fact that this is not normal, just asked... Did you not see the poop on your car? Because you know that's a pretty reasonable question to ask in our world when you just find Dookie on your windshield. And she replied matter-of-factly that her ex-boyfriend just poops on her windshield from time to time if he suspects that she's with somebody else. And then, when asked why she didn't warn him about the revenge Dookie, she just said that it's not that bad, and at least he didn't get in the at least he didn't get in the car. And then that, of course, begged the question: What happens if he gets in the car? And then she just replies, matter-of-factly, well, he poops in the car then. (laughs) Then she drops the bombshells that this dude not only lives in the same apartment complex as she does, but he's also been committing this act of revenge defecation for two years. And she just laughed it off. So we might be mad at somebody defecating in our car, but imagine it happening five times. We might still be mad at that, but what about 20 times? What about... Six months, would you still be mad after a year of someone pooping in your car? If after a year of that mess, what if they stop pooping in the car and start, and start pooping on it? Perhaps after 18 months of cleaning somebody else's feces, you probably thank God that somebody was nice enough to poop on it rather than in it. Would you even be disgusted after two years? How about 10 years? How about 126 years? How about 400 years? After that amount of time, you probably become grateful that people have the decency to let you go to school or work in peace. You get so used to adapting to white standards of respectability or cleaning up other people's feces that it doesn't even bother us anymore. We know no one's coming to help us. So we just spray the poop off and we keep driving. So when a general authority concedes that thing concedes things that ought to have been common knowledge, we're tempted to shout hallelujah because they have the decency to do something they should have been doing anyway. But then, perhaps, we're just being grateful that our exes stopped taking revenge defecations in our car and opted instead to take revenge defecations on the windshield. So, like, yeah. We we have to make sure we hold this victory in tension with the fact that it's still not enough. As you've said on the show before, Derek, we can't be complacent or satisfied with crumbs. We cannot be satisfied that our windshields are now being take, are now being defecated upon rather than our actual car interior. So I just wanted to lift that up while we celebrate this victory.
1: No immediate reactions to my parable on poop, Derek. <laughs> I'm just really thinking through these things and how it's a tension between celebrating progress and holding out the final goal like and this is, happens in the queer community too like are we should we celebrate these small victories that we get in, in the legislature or the courts and I think my answer is yes because some people are going to need those celebrations to just make it through another day to deal with the hard life of of what it what it's like to live as a queer person in America or in the church and I think some people are willing to take what they can and just celebrate those and then acknowledge the bigger picture
0: mm-hmm how did you feel about Oaks's comparisons of uh, current conversations on racism or presentism as he compared them to, you know... The Churchill thing? I mean, the Churchill thing, but there was also the the gospel first to the Jews, then the Gentiles, and oh. also the Levitical priesthood. Did you have any immediate feelings about him comparing current conversations on racism to that?
1: Right. I, th- I think that's a longer conversation, but my view is that these... Other things are not adequate or legitimate ways of defending the the priesthood and temple ban Mm -hmm. for people of African descent. Some people want to use it that way. I think Oaks is caught in a real bind, though, himself because he can't really say that the ban was not from God, and he can't really say that the ban was from God. He can only kind of dance around it and be ambiguous and let people hear what they want to hear. And the reason he can't say it's from God is because then it looks like God is supporting racism, and God does racist stuff. And then he can't say that it's not from God because then it looks like well, God's servants can get something really, really wrong that mm-hmm. shouldn't that shouldn't that should be easy to get right. Right. And so neither of those options is good. So he just can't he can't answer it. That's still difficult for me, man,
0: because like we're going to get into this as soon as we get into the come follow me. But I just find, uh, I don't know, the more time goes by, the more I'm just like, do we really, are we really such a graceless people as members of the church that we cannot hear or accept that our leaders make mistakes? How do we get to this point, especially considering all of
1: the scriptures that talk about the imperfections of our leaders? You know, I have a th- theory behind this. All right. And a lot of these things end up not being about the homos. It's really about them and the decisions that they have made in their lives based on what the leaders say. So the reason why they need to have this view of the infallibility of the leaders is because they've made decisions in their life based on what they were told. And the cognitive dissonance of realizing they're wrong about the homos means, well, maybe they were wrong to tell me that I should marry the first girl that would date me at 18. Mm. or maybe they were wrong to tell me that I should have paid all my money in tithing and and not have food for a month or maybe they were wrong to tell me X, Y, Z and I may, the person would be saying I made all these decisions trusting that that was the right thing to do but if I take the rug out from the infallibility then that brings into question all these these sacrifices or awful things that now I have to face that maybe that wasn't the right thing for me to do and they Mm -hmm. don't want to do that. Yes, sir. I think that's why I've said many times that all homophobia is autobiography. Hmm. It's not about the homos. It's about their self-identity, their ego, their construct of themselves. Something about that would be ripped apart by this other thing that doesn't even affect them. And I think that's what Oakes is dealing with. Like, I think there's something about his testimony that would fall apart if he said the ban was never from God. That's a
0: great point. And thank you for sharing that, by the way. I love that all homophobia is autobiography. I've heard you say that before, but like, I'm gonna remember that this time Mm -hmm. because just, that is such an accurate reflection of what we see in you know homophobia and racism as well, and other forms of bigotry. Just people are telling a lot more about themselves than
1: about the people they oppress. And that has implications on how we fight homophobia because I can't just go up to these homophobes and shake them and say, hey, what? You gotta be nicer to the homos because it's deeper than that. I have Absolutely. to make change accessible to them in a way that doesn't goof up their identity because if I make it too co- i it's supposed to be costly for them but if I make it unnecessarily costly then they'll be less likely to change. If right. I can make the change feel like it's not a change, then they'll they'll be on board with it. If it doesn't end up affecting them or in their testimony or goof up them, but if I take if I pull the rug out of from under them of something that was propping up their life, mm-hmm. it's not going to go well. It They're not going to let me do that.
0: It is not. Could lead to entrenchment or or worse. Retrenchment is that the right word? Retrenchment or yeah. worse. But anyway, uh, is there anything else we want to say about Oaks before we move on to the Come Follow Me? Nope, that's it. All right, then let's go ahead and move on to Mormon chapter seven through nine. Derek, is there any kind of uh, context you want to
1: give to these chapters
0: before we uh, before we talk about them?
1: Well, chapter 7 is Mormon's last words to us. And then chapters 8 and 9 are Moroni's finishing the record. And I think if you really want to know what are someone's last dying words, what are the things that they want to leave for thousands of years as their last words, look at chapter 7 and see the focus on Christ. See the um, plea in verse verses 8 and 9. And I like that because it does this connection between the Book of Mormon and the Bible. It says basically that this, the Book of Mormon, is written intent that you may believe that, the Bible. Mm -hmm. And if you believe that, that is the Bible, then you will believe this, the Book of Mormon also. And I think it's really intertwined because a lot of people in the church culturally think, oh, like we're primarily about the Book of Mormon, but the Book of Mormon makes me want to read the Bible and the Bible makes me want to read the Book of Mormon. It's kind of like seeing one hot guy makes me like all hot guys. (laughs) That's the best you could do. (laughs) Uh, No, I mean... All the poetry you got in your head, that is the best analog you could have thought of. (laughs) Well, I mean, this goes back to something in Plato's Symposium that I'm not going to get into, but there's this idea of looking at the beauty of one leads you to a higher and higher ladder of looking at all beauty and then beauty in its abstract form. But, But I like this idea of... Seeing the power of God's word and how it leads you to Christ, which is really what Mormon's point was. So that's all I have for introduction.
0: Sounds good. I also just want to bring up that, you know, Mormon's last words were not only testimonies of Christ, but also an attempt to reach out to the descendants of the people that killed him, like that would ultimately end up killing him. That takes Mm -hmm. a lot to have your last words not just be a testimony of Christ. You've seen all your people die, but this is what you want to leave people with. You want to leave them with a testimony of Christ and a strong urging to read these words, to receive Christ, but also to reach out to the descendants of the people that kill you, to also let them know to believe in Christ and also let them know they're a remnant of the house of Israel. Like That is... I mean, I said this last week, but like I don't know how Mormon is doing all this. I don't know how he's... I don't know how he doesn't have this bitterness. He's going out on, I suppose, as high of a note as you can go out, not just uh, bearing testimony, but also,
1: in essence, blessing the posterity of his murderers. Well, I have a theory behind that, and as someone who's obsessed with the scriptures, I'm going to claim that as the reason why Mormon was able to do that. Like, he just finished editing over a thousand years of history, and seeing how the gospel does and doesn't impact people and when people rely on hostility and arms to get security then it all falls apart but when they rely on the gospel of christ then that's when real peace can happen and he learned that lesson like the hard way and not just in his own life but seeing all of the thousands of years of records, or just about a thousand years of records that he was editing, he really was convinced that the gospel of Jesus Christ is what the future needs. And future hostility isn't gonna fix it. He'd learned that.
0: Mm. That is significant. I'm glad you highlighted those uh, verses in chapter seven. I thought a lot about verse 9 and verse 10 this harkens back to some scriptures that we hear at the end of Nephi's record Where he basically lets us know the same thing if you believe in Christ, you'll believe these words if you believe the Bible you'll believe the Book of Mormon and uh, I, I just like that near the end of this record that we're coming to We are being yet again reminded that these in fact are the words of Christ and uh, that's how Mormon wants to go out so uh, is there anything else in chapter 7 we want to talk about before we move to chapter 8? No, I'm fine with chapter 8. All right, so chapter 8. Um, at this point, this is Moroni taking over the record for his father Mormon. Mormon's been killed, and Moroni and the remaining survivors, which number less than 24, are being hunted down. Moroni is finishing the record, and he's about to go hide them out, hide, hide them up, and he starts uh, talking to the people who shall receive this record, the people of our day there is a profound lament and disappointment throughout these verses moroni lost his people and now he's looking to our day and he's seeing murder he's seeing pride he's seeing injustice apostasy secret abominations among our people there, there's just so much happening one of the first things that uh, caught my eye in these verses uh in this vein probably started in verse 26 and this is going to be touched upon in verse 9 so i'll probably want to save this for later he said that these words were going to come in a day that miracles are done away and in the next chapter we'll learn about why that is but i want to talk about what he starts in verse i I guess 33 he starts asking about the perverseness and the stiff neckedness of the people he says why have ye transfigured the holy word of God that ye might bring damnation uh, upon your souls. He tells them that there's going to be, that this is going to come forth in a day where people say, come unto me and for your money, you shall be forgiven of your sins. It probably should be mentioned that at this time, uh, that the book of Mormon actually came forth or not necessarily at that time. But one of the key criticisms that Martin Luther had of the church was this idea of pardons and how people were literally paying For forgiveness of sins but we still see that to a degree today we see people going donating to the church in hopes that you know their acts of sin might be excused this first thing that he talks about this first thing that he laments is people transfiguring the Holy Word of God that they might bring damnations upon their souls, and I would say upon other souls as well. We've talked about this before. Twice in the book of 3rd Nephi, during the ministry of Christ, he has said that we must not add or take away from his word. Basically saying that we should not add or take away requirements of salvation. We shouldn't change those requirements. And it's yet another condemnation of one of the grossest sins of churches today, which is using God's law as a weapon of of division, of oppression, of bigotry and a lot more. Uh I'll cross references this, this cross reference this again to Matthew 23 where we see a chapter long rebuke by Jesus of people doing this very thing, pronouncing woes upon the scribes and Pharisees, calling them hypocrites because they are in essence doing this, what is being written in chapter 8 verse 33, transfiguring the word of God that they might bring damnations upon their souls. Again, he moves to verse 36. He says, Your churches, yea, even every one, have become polluted because of the pride of your hearts. And I took notice of that phrase, even every one, because now I know he's not just talking to other churches. He's actually talking to us too. In fact, since we have the Book of Mormon, he might be talking directly to us. We might be quick to point the finger at other churches where this is more brazen, but this can totally be us. Look at what he says next. For behold, ye do love money and your substance and your fine apparel and the adorning of your churches more than ye love the poor and the needy, the sick and the afflicted. And he's not wrong about that. We don't treat poor people well today. We treat them as a burden. We blame them for their poverty. We tell them that if they simply worked harder, they would stop being poor. You know, we we tell the children of the poor to work hard so they don't end up like their parents and they don't. Don't, and we don't mm. realize that many of them are not afforded the same opportunities or the same privileges that other children are.
1: And the irony with that is poor people work way more than yeah. rich people. Like yeah. if working hard got you money, like, we yeah, we wouldn't be in this situation.
0: Not at all. So consequently, this this stigma about poverty, they inform our high opinions of wealth, which is why many of us, Chase wealth as well as you know merely the appearance of it, and this is like it always starts with costly apparel, and like when it comes to people being lifted up in the pride of their hearts, it's it almost always starts with economic inequality. And then verse forty hit me especially hard. I I never read it this way before. I'm just gonna read this real quick. Why do ye build up your secret abominations to get gain and cause? that widows should mourn before the Lord, and also orphans to mourn before the Lord, and also the blood of their fathers and their husbands to cry unto the Lord from the ground for vengeance upon your heads. This time reading this passage, I heard white supremacy specifically as the secret abomination. I heard black children, black wives, and black mothers there having their fathers, their husbands, their brothers, and sons taken away because the American institution keeps killing them. And refusing to do anything about it. America is either going to reckon with this ourselves or God's going to do it. Just this week, we lost Marcella Stinnett, an an, an unarmed 19-year-old father. And we lost Walter Wallace, a 27-year-old man in need of mental health assistance. Who, unlike most white men in that same situation, was not given the benefit of the doubt. And subsequently, he was gunned down too. We're not conditioned to see white supremacy as a secret abomination or a conspiracy, as the footnote here implies in, uh, in verse 40. But this is where we find ourselves, senseless systemic deaths of black and brown bodies with no accountability, no changes. Like you can bet their blood cries to God and there will be a time, as Moroni writes in this verse and the next, that God will not suffer their cries any longer. And I don't think we're going to like what that looks like. Verse 40, I hear the blood of the many unarmed black people that we have killed crying from the ground, crying for accountability, crying for vengeance, crying for justice.
1: Yes, that that is definitely true. And it's a a very prominent theme among the biblical prophets as well, Mm -hmm. crying out for justice and saying, well, God's going to afflict you with awful things because of the way you treat the most marginalized in your society.
0: Mm -hmm. I think that's all I got for... Mormon 8. There were a couple of things that also stood out but you know wanted to see if you had anything from Mormon yeah, 8. Yeah
1: let me just go back I don't have a lot of details about this but I just was touched by the phrasing of Mormon 8 verses 4 and 5 where he talks about how he's alone and like he doesn't know if he's gonna die or not he just yeah he just doesn't know he says I have not friends nor whither to go. Oof and i'm wondering about this and connecting this with lgbt loneliness it's mm-hmm. not the same thing at all but there's phrasing there that resonates it leads me to ask the question was moroni single he never mentions a wife or children and he if he had one that that died in a battle he may have he may have mentioned a wife or children that that died but apparently from what we know he was always single so so there's room for, like, single prophets, people who don't have the, quote, traditional ideal Mormon family. And there's room for for those of us in that position to speak out with very clear words from God's wisdom. There's something I also wanted to add, speaking of the words of God's wisdom, in verse 16, about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. It says, Blessed be he, meaning presumably joseph smith that shall bring this thing to light for it shall be brought out of darkness unto light however now that i think about it i wonder if that means blessed be jesus because jesus really is also the one who brought forth the book of mormon to us so and blessed be he that shall bring this to light for it shall be brought out of darkness unto light according to the word of god it shall be brought out of the earth it shall shine forth out of darkness And what I like about that is it's an uncloseting, that the Book of Mormon was hit up, not allowed to express itself into the world for over a thousand years, and then it was released. And what a grand releasing that was. And the thing about coming out of the closet is, and this isn't just like a weird stretch, I really think that when people come out of the closet, there's more light and more truth, which is exactly what's going on here with the Book of Mormon. And I wanted to talk a little bit about verse 20 because it says, Man shall not smite, neither shall he judge, for judgment is mine, vengeance is mine, and I will repay. Patrick Mason has this main thesis that, yes, there's violence and war in the Book of Mormon, but what it teaches us is that violence never solves the problem that it claims to solve. and Violence never brings enduring peace. It only spirals into more and more retribution and cycling around with getting revenge and retaliation and cycles and cycles upon that and they they literally did that for thousands of years just because of what some brothers did to each other they couldn't neither side could eventually get over that and i want to connect this with something really interesting and so there's this german theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his he was a lutheran theologian in the 30s and 40s which is not a good time to be in germany if you are on the right side and here's what what bonhoeffer said he said how does peace come about through a system of political treaties through the investment of international capital in different countries through the big banks through money or through universal peaceful rearmament in order to guarantee peace through none of these for the single reason that, in all of them, peace is confused with safety. There is no way to peace along the way of safety. For peace must be dared. It is the great venture. It can never be safe. Peace is the opposite of security. To demand guarantees is to mistrust, and this mistrust, in turns, bring forth war. To look for guarantees is to want to protect oneself, Peace means to give oneself altogether to the law of God, wanting no security, but in faith and obedience, laying the destiny of the nations in the hand of Almighty God, not trying to direct it for selfish purposes. Battles are won, not with weapons, but with God. They are won where the way leads to the cross. And a lot of people are are probably not going to like that because they want to be secure and safe and, and stuff. But this gets back into some of our struggles around oppression. And I think part of what happens is people want to be safe and comfortable, especially white people or straight people, cis people, are socialized to want to think that their needs and their privilege being challenged is somehow unsafe. And when you look at it in in this perspective, we realize that there's a sense in which Bonhoeffer is right that peace and security aren't the same thing. Look at Abinadi. He wasn't safe, but I think he was at peace when he died. And that's the same thing Jesus calls us to. You know, Matthew 16 verses 24 and 25 says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. A lot of people talk about the cross as, oh, like, my cross to bear is the, you know, 20 math problems that I have to do tonight. No, that's not what it is. The cross is the literal cross. It is an execution thing. When Jesus says cross, I want you to think of the electric chair or the firing squad or something like that or, or the guillotine right take that up and you realize he, he's not calling us to be safe i don't i can't even think of any commandment in the bible that tells us that we must always make ourselves safe at every time and every place i mean there's time to be safe but i don't think there's a universal command to keep yourself safe
0: i have to agree i like that word or that phrase you use where being like to be at peace is to what was it be a dare go
1: like, I forget the phrasing, but yeah, there, there's like this inherent risk. Peace must be dared, and I think this gets back into our work as oppressed people. We should never choose the safety of the closet as a final solution to mm. everything. We need to take some risks. It's gonna hurt. It's gonna be unsafe. Like right. when I took my risk saying what I did this past Sunday mm-hmm. that was a risk. Yeah. I did I chose peace over safety. Yeah. And I think that's what we as people need to be prepared to do is take risks to dare peace, to trust that even if we end up giving our lives that somehow the greater glory of God's peace will shine through that. Right. Peace over safety, choosing peace over safety. And I, Seems. Yeah, and I think the 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 underlying thing here is a lot of people going back to what he what what he started with. He says, "Well, what brings peace? What? It, it's not money. It's not political power treaties. It's not rearmament. These are things that people get not because they want peace, but because they want security and safety." Mm-hmm. And he says, "None of those will actually deliver those things. They will only give you more war, more everything else." And I think that's where the people in power can learn a lesson too. So the people who are oppressed can learn to dare uh, and risk the lack of safety. But I think that's the same thing those in power need to do, is we need to dare to choose peace over all of these artificial ways of using power to get our way and to keep ourselves safe when what we're really doing is just keeping our privilege safe Mm -hmm. and keeping our ego safe. And that never needs to deserve to be safe. Correct.
0: Correct. This to me harkens back to uh, the baptismal covenant as outlined in Mosiah chapter uh, 18. And being willing to mourn with those who mourn is can often be a risk comfort. Those who stand in need of comfort can be a risk standing as a witness of God at all times and all and in all things and in all places that can be a risk. But those are our covenantally obligated duties as disciples of Christ. We are supposed to choose peace. We are supposed to choose our covenants over our comfort, over our safety slash security. Like, that, is, that has always been the path of discipleship. So I'm really, I'm really glad you brought that up.
1: Yeah, I'm curious. Do you think President Oaks took a risk when he said what he did? Yeah, I think he did take a risk. Saying Black
0: Lives Matter... At BYU in Provo, I do think he took a risk because, again, he didn't qualify saying Black Lives Matter. He didn't qualify conceding that there was anti-Black racism and systemic discrimination. That was a
1: risk. That was a risk. Yeah, I fear that so many of our brethren are socialized to play it safe. Absolutely. And our prophets are at their best when they take risks, take social risks. Well, this ties into the imperfections of our leaders that Moroni really cl- clarifies. If you go yes, to sir. verse 31 of chapter 9, yeah, he says, condemn me not because of mine imperfections, neither my father because of his imperfection, and n- not the ones before them. And the, what's interesting is it says... This very clearly says, but rather give thanks unto God that he hath made manifest unto you our imperfections, that, oh, I love subordinating conjunctions, (laughs) that ye may learn to be more wise than we have been. So this sort of flies in the face of the Churchill quote, which I think, this is in President Oaks' talk where President Oaks quotes Churchill saying, well, let's just get over the past, Mm -hmm. you know, because if we quarrel with the past we may, I forgot how he phrased it, but we may lose the future, Mm -hmm. something like that. If the present quarrels with the past, we may lose the future. But what Moroni is teaching us with that lovely word that is there's a purpose for us knowing. Notice that Moroni says it's God that makes manifest the imperfections of the prophetic uh, records, right? Mm -hmm. Because he says, Don't condemn my imperfections, my father's imperfections, nor any of these other scripture writers before him, but give thanks to God for making these imperfections known, not so much to condemn these prophets, but that we may learn to be more wise than we have been, which is saving the future, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. you learn not to make the same mistakes. And I think that's the danger of misapplying Churchill's phrasing. I think Churchill may have been right for this very limited historically you know one time circumstance but as a general principle
0: he says that in verse 32 we have written according to our knowledge like they're doing the best they can with what they got
1: right and so i think we can definitely learn from the past and we should should quarrel not so much quarrel with the past but we need to engage the past Mm -hmm. and and declare what we're not going to bring with us And that's kind of what we need to do with our history, both in the church and in the United States, around race. We need to acknowledge the past, name it, repudiate it, and repair the damage so that we don't move forward continuing the damage. Totally. Really
0: glad you highlighted verse 31 because I noticed the same thing. I was like, This is super comforting just to know that our leaders and prophets of old are flawed individuals with imperfect knowledge. It takes a ton of pressure off of them and of us as well. And it allows us to hold them accountable and give them grace at the same time as the Lord does with each of us individually. Mm -hmm. This is a very important thing, a very important skill as Latter-day Saints. I wish we would make more time to cultivate it, but we are given permission in verse 31 to do it right there. Just we have to be able to... uh, yeah, acknowledge the imperfections of this record, acknowledge the imperfections of our leaders so that we can learn from it and hold them accountable, but also that we might
1: give them grace. Um, So I'm really glad you pointed that out. And, you know, being able to discern the imperfections of leaders or the scriptures is a spiritual gift. And, you know, what's really curious is Moroni completely condemns those that deny miraculous spiritual gifts, including tongues, miracles, all these other things. Mm -hmm. But one really important spiritual gift, let's look at verse 11 of chapter nine. Behold, I will show unto you a God of miracles, even the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This is amazing because the God that gave people the gift of discernment thousands of years ago gives that to us today. And the gift of discernment is mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, the discernment of spirits. Like, one spiritual gift is being able to listen to what someone says, a leader, a member, anyone, and discern whether it's valid or not. That's a spiritual gift. So it's not apostasy to say, hey, look, I can tell when someone's wrong. That's not apostasy, that's actually faith. It's the practice of faith. We've, we've
0: talked a few times on this show about how problematic it is for anyone to suppose that the doctrine of Christ isn't, quote-unquote, doctrine of Christ, isn't going to change concerning members of the LGBTQ community, but this isn't the God we worship. The God we worship is a God of miracles. The God we worship is a God of spiritual gifts. You've said on the show, Derek, that the God we worship does impossible things. In other words, he is a God of miracles, and anyone who says otherwise... As it says here has not read the scriptures verse 8 and if so he does not understand them it's very important that we do not put limits on who god is and what he can do for us Mm -hmm. because then we end up with the same kind of situations that we've come across in moroni chapter 8 verse 26 we will exist in a day miracles will not exist in a day where miracles are done away and he says the reason that miracles are done away in chapter 9 the reason that god doesn't know miracles among us is because verse 20 the reason he ceaseth to do miracles among the children of men is because they dwindle in unbelief and depart from the right way and know not the god in whom they should trust that is critical we have to understand that people who would say that God can't work the miracles that we are asking for. God who cannot work the miracles for oppressed people. God who cannot work the miracle of allowing members of the LGBTQ community to exist in their authentic expression of their mutable identities. Miracles will not be done among people who believe such things. Yes. They don't even right. know the God. In the God of miracles. Trust, the God of miracles.
1: A good way of saying that is when President Oaks said Black Lives Matter, god did an impossible thing i literally you could have i would have said that that's impossible (laughs) i would have said president oaks never in his life will ever say black lives matter correct i would have i would have said that's more impossible than me turning straight i knew Uh, you were gonna say that (laughs) right because that's that's impossible too Mm -hmm. but i I never would have said that, but that that's proof positive that we're led by living prophets who are inspired of God, and God breaks through the limitations of these imperfect uh, revelators, just like He does with all of us. I don't. I I wish that people would wouldn't think that the gifts that the prophets and apostles have are somehow qualitatively different than what we have. They may have, mm-hmm. may have a little more of the same thing but they don't have a fundamentally different gift than the rest of us do. I love how Moroni names revelation and prophecy among the first of the gifts in verse 7 of chapter 9. And people are going to say that there's no revelations or prophecies or gifts or healings or tongues. And I think personal revelation is one of the most important spiritual gifts for LGBT members of the church because we have to know God directly.
0: There's precedent for it as well people who have traditionally been in the classes of people who did not have the gospel preached to them for example cornelius he knew before peter did that he was going to get the gospel some of the blessings that we seek are not going to come directly from who we hold as our leaders i think that's all i have for Nine nine or mormon nine that's all i have as well cool Then uh, before we move on to some housekeeping items, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, A Journal of Mormon Thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com
1: slash podcast network. Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com and also on Twitter and Facebook. we also
0: want to remind you guys about our glow page in an effort to sustain the work of the show and also improve it in various ways to further the mission of beyond the block and to make mormonism accessible to everyone we launched that page a few months ago and those who where you can contribute a one-time or monthly contribution and those who contribute anything will get access to all the benefits of being in collaboration with us including access to our collaborator facebook group where you can interact with us more directly provide feedback and ideas for the show you can access our notes suggest uh episode ideas for bonuses and topical things and much more and uh, if you've got not coins to throw at us you can just share our glow page on your socials and you can still join our collaborator community because we want to make this ex- make this as accessible as we can to everybody uh one of them welcome Four new collaborators this week, Eliza Maglin, Tiffany Ann Reichert, I hope I'm saying that right, Brooke M. Purvis, or Pervs, hope I'm saying that right as well, and uh, Juliet Fairley. So thank you guys all for joining our collaborator community. Hope to hear from you guys soon. Finally, want to thank our friends. Tamara Kemsley for editing the show, David Doyle for editing our transcripts, and also welcome back Eden Wynn who's been handling our social media. Had a baby, snapped back like three months, three weeks later, already working on stuff. So thank you very much. And uh, again, congratulations on your kid. Thank you guys for listening. Till we meet again next week. Okay, bye everyone. I'll see you next week.